Okay, so this morning we are continuing with the fourth part of our series on the book of Esther. In part one, we saw that God is in control. Even when things look like they are spinning out of control, God is working behind the scenes. He leaves his fingerprints all over human, human history. And we saw this as Vashti was deposed, setting the stage for the ascension of Esther. And then in part two, in chapter two, we saw that God is way ahead of the game. Nothing surprises him. I mean, things might surprise us, but nothing surprises him. The coronavirus might surprise us, but nothing surprises God. We again saw God leave three pristine, God-sized fingerprints all over this chapter. First, in the unusual method of selecting a new queen. Then, in the very unusual selection of Esther as the new queen. And finally, in the remarkably coincidental uncovering of a plot to assassinate the king by Mordecai, followed by the equally astonishing lack of a reward to Mordecai for his loyalty. Then last week, in part three, we saw that God is with us on the journey. Even when we can't see his hand or understand what is happening, God is with us. He has not forsaken us. And as we left off last week, we saw that Haman had unveiled his wicked, devil-inspired plan to annihilate all the Jewish people in the kingdom. The Jews were in mourning, going about in sackcloth and ashes, and Mordecai had appealed to Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. And after Esther struggled with that decision for a while, she finally agreed uh, saying that if everyone would fast and pray for three days, um, then she would go to the king, even though it is against the law. And she said, if I perish, I perish. And as we ended last time, we noted that there's a time for being on your face before God, and there's a time for getting up and doing God's business in faith. And usually that requires crossing a threshold of decision beyond which there is no going back. And that is where we pick up the story today. The uncertainty of having to make a frightening decision when you can't control the outcome. Hopefully, her actions would result in the salvation of her people, but there was a possibility that they could re result in her immediate execution and with the date of the extermination of her people being moved up several months. Have you ever had to make a decision uh, on a course of action when you had little control over the outcome? Well, it can be unnerving. It can be unsettling. Sometimes all you can do is what Esther did. Pray, fast, seek God, and then make the wisest decision you can and trust God with the outcome. So that's where we find Esther as we come to chapter 5. She's about to cross the threshold of no return. So we look in verse 1 and it says this, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. All right, now, there's the step. There's no going back now. It says the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. Now, presumably, he's doing kingly business or whatever kings do when they're sitting on their throne. Now, Esther is exposed here. She's in the inner hall. Everyone sees her. What will the king do? Now, this moment probably lasted three or four or five seconds, but it must have seemed like an eternity to Esther as she waited to see whether or not the king would extend his scepter. And then in verse 2, it says, When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Well, you know what? That's good news. I mean, if that didn't happen, 
then this rescue mission would have been done before it even got started. And so even though the king hadn't shown any interest in her in 30 days, now he's pleased to see her. So verse 3, the king asks, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. Now, you have to know uh, that surely everyone in the court is wondering what in the world she wants. What could be so important that she would risk death to walk right into the court? You know, maybe some thought that she had grown careless or reckless. Maybe some thought she was starting to act like Vashti had acted years before. Clearly, she has something important on her mind. And the king knows it and that it could be big because he says, What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. In verse 4, she says, If it pleases the king, let the king, together with Haman, come today to the banquet I have prepared for him. Okay, now, wait a minute here. Why doesn't Esther just come out with her request right now? I mean, the king just told her that she can have whatever she wants, even half the kingdom. I mean, surely the lives of the Jews don't equal up to half the kingdom. I mean, she's prayed. She's fasted. The king has said that she can have what she wants. I mean, why wait? Why insert this banquet here? Well, there's a passage in the book of Ecclesiastes that talks about dealing with a king or a ruler. And in part, it says this. The wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. And so I think that as Esther is looking at the situation, she's not convinced that this is the right time. And she's not convinced that this is the right place or setting. Here in the king's court, everything is official. There's all these advisors around. And surely every one of them would um, have an opinion and want to share their opinion on what should be done. And, and, and Haman is the closest advisor that the king has. And the king hasn't seen Esther in 30 days, but he's seen Haman every day for the last 30 days. I don't think she's sure of her position yet. She, she's not certain if she has the king's heart or if Haman will hold sway. So this is the wrong time and the wrong setting. And besides, everyone knows that the proper time to make a big ask of your husband is right after his favorite meal. I know a lot of women think that, well, they just uh, made that up just recently. But here Esther is doing that 2,500 years ago. So she asks for the king and Haman to come to her banquet. And that brings up another question. Why invite Haman to this meal? I mean, why not get the king entirely alone, soften him up, and then ask him the request? Well, you know, that might seem desirable at first. But while she doesn't need all of the other advisors around, she does need Haman to be there. Because if she asked the king without Haman there, then the king would likely go have a private conversation with Haman about it, giving him the opportunity to talk his way around it and, and out of it. And, and not only that, she really needs Haman there to gauge the king's demeanor towards her and towards Haman at the same time. Who really holds the king's heart? Who would the king really rather lose if he had to choose, Haman or Esther? And so even though it's difficult, she needs Haman to be there. 
And so the king says in verse 5, bring Haman at once so that we may do what Esther asks. All right, well, that's good as well, right? He doesn't deny her. He doesn't say, hey, I can fit you in maybe a week from next Tuesday. He doesn't even say, you know, I've got a busy day today. Um, we'll let you know when we're done. It might be late or anything like that. He drops everything and says, bring Haman at once so that we may do what Esther asks. Going on in verse 5 and 6, it says, so the king and Haman went into the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. So the king is wise enough to know that this is about more than just wanting to have dinner together. I mean, you don't risk your life just to have dinner. And he knows that there is something else important on Esther's heart, something she hasn't revealed yet. So verse 7, Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So again here, the obvious question is, why wait? Why delay again? The king seems to be in good spirits. He seems to want to grant Esther's request. Why put it off again? And I think in that moment, Esther looks at the king and she looks at Haman and she's still not sure that this is the right moment. She's still not sure who has the king's heart. The setting is right, but she's not sure the timing is right. So she says, one more day, come tomorrow to one more banquet and I will reveal my request. And we're kind of just left hanging like a TV show that says, tune in next time for the conclusion to see if our hero can save the day. But as we pivot here, what I want you to see is two things. First, Esther took the step. She crossed the threshold of decision. She crossed the point of no return. She walked into the unknown with God. You know, sometimes you just have to do that. Second, this delay is God providentially working in Esther. God has some things that are part of his plan that would require one more day to unfold. Have you ever had a time when you waited on something for no reason it seemed to you and then found out later that, that something really important happened because you waited? God works providentially in the lives of believers, even when we can't see behind the scenes. All right, going on in chapter 5, verses 9 to 14. Now we're going to look at Haman's rage, right? We kind of pivot here to Haman in the story. And in verse 9, it says, Haman went out that day happy and in good spirits, right? He's in a good mood. He's got a spring in his step. But going on, it says, when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. I mean, it sounds like he would have liked to have taken out his sword and executed him on the spot, but filled with rage, he's not letting this go. And when he got home, it says, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. I mean, this guy really needs approval. I mean, there's one guy in the kingdom who will not show him honor. One guy out of how many thousands, and he can't stand it. And so he's got to call all of his friends and family together because he needs to impress them all. 
and he starts boasting about his wealth. I mean, who does that? I mean, calls everyone together just to boast about how wealthy they are. And then he starts boasting about his children. I mean, how many of you like that? I mean, like you're at a party and some guy just monopolizes the conversation, telling you all about his wonderful children and their jobs and their accomplishments. And he takes out his phone and he keeps showing you picture after picture and telling you where they went to school and all that. And you, maybe you try to get away and uh, you can't get away. He keeps following you. You try to change the subject and it keeps coming back to his children. And, uh, and then he starts boasting uh, uh, about his own job here uh, and accomplishments and how great he is. And basically... Haman is a first-class bore. He needs so much validation. Going on in verse 12, Haman says, And that's not all. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. I wish I could see how his wife is reacting to this. I, I wish I could see her face because she's probably wondering, you know, Haman, how come you keep bringing up the queen and how much she likes you? Is you know, something going on there? I mean, he's just, he's just being really awkward at this point. And um, after all this boasting, he says something that is so revealing. He says, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Oh, my goodness. This guy is a piece of work. I mean, he has everything. Second most powerful guy in the kingdom, super wealthy, super influential, has a large family, and no satisfaction. And you know what this tells us? When you let your satisfaction or your happiness or your joy or contentment be conditioned on anything that someone else can withhold from you, then you make your heart and mind a prisoner of that person. I just want to say that again. If you let your satisfaction or your happiness or joy or contentment be conditioned on anything that someone else can withhold from you, then you become a prisoner in your mind and in your heart to that person. Haman is Mordecai's prisoner, and Mordecai doesn't even know it. Haman is a prisoner of rage and malice and bitterness and discontent and slander. And his wife and friends, well, they think they're going to help him. Look at verse 14. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits. That's about 75 feet. And, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Now, when someone is given over to anger, rage and malice and bitterness, the best advice is not to think of ways for them to express it. That's not good advice. You know, that's more like appeasement. And, you know, and when you're upset with something or something's just got you uh, worked up, you need to be careful about who you take advice from because not everybody is your friend. Not everybody's going to give you the best advice. Sometimes people will just appease you to get, get rid of you, you know, instead of uh, giving you the advice that you really need. But here it says, nevertheless, this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the poll set up. All right, so let's move on to chapter six now. Haman has his plan in action. The annihilation date for the Jews is set and the execution date for Mordecai is set for the next day. The poll is set up. But as we begin chapter 6, we're going to see that God has his plan in action as well. None of the people in the story can see it. And sometimes in our lives, we can't always see it. But God has his plan in action. Evil people sometimes seem to succeed in their plans. But God will have the last word. And we are about to see 
another God-sized fingerprint left in this story. Verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Now, we're, remember, we're about 12 years into his reign now. And so uh, he thought that he couldn't sleep, and that was a coincidence. But in reality, it, this is God keeping him up at night. In verse 2, going on, it says, It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this the king asked nothing has been done for him his attendants answered all right so not only is the king providentially kept awake at night now he providentially asks for the records of his reign to be read to him i mean he could have asked for some warm milk and cookies to try try to go to sleep but instead he asked for a boring book to be read to him instead and wouldn't you know it out of the 12 years of history that could have been read to him his attendant just happens to choose this story about Mordecai saving him, and he finds out that he has never rewarded him for his loyalty. Now, that is one God-sized fingerprint plastered all over King Xerxes' bedroom. But it gets even better. Look at verse 4. The king hears someone in the court, and uh, it must have been getting to be early morning, and uh, Haman's arrived, and he asks, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. And and, and this is really great, because at the very same time, Haman is thinking about executing Mordecai. The king is thinking about ways to publicly honor him. So they bring Haman in, and before he can say a word, the king asks, what should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? And of course, Haman is thinking, "Well, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? I'm his favorite. So he, in complete pride, he says, you know, for the king, the, the, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe um, that the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a world crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city gates, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And Haman by now is very pleased with himself. And the king replies in verse 10, Go at once, get the robe and the horse, and do just as you as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Now, don't you just love that? I mean, don't you just wish you could have been there to see the look on Haman's face? I mean, do you think that God has a sense of humor? I mean, when the Bible says that God scoffs, at the plans of the wicked. I think um, that here we see an example of that. Verse 11. It says, So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now, can you imagine what Mordecai is thinking? I mean, when Haman shows up with royal robes and a royal seat and says, put these on and saddle up. I mean, I wish I could have been there for that conversation. I imagine it went something like this. You know, Haman uh, uh, says to him to put on these royal robes and saddle up. And and Mordecai says, Haman, uh, what are you trying to do? Um, Get me in trouble or something? And uh, he says, no, the king wants to honor you. And Mordecai says, why? And, And well, Mordecai, why does that matter? Just put them on. Well, yeah, it matters. Um, How do I know you're not trying to trick me? He said, well, look, the king just wants to honor you for saving his life. Just get on, okay, and put them on. And, uh, you know, however it went down, the evil, prideful guy is leading the humble guy who has a death sentence 
He's leading him around on the king's horse and in the king's robes and telling everybody how great he is. How weird is this? I mean, the one guy who wouldn't bow and honor Haman is now being honored by Haman. And then verse 12, uh, afterwards Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home uh, with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh's wife all his fr- and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And I love this in verse 13. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Well, that's encouraging. I mean, yesterday, think about this. Yesterday, they were all like, yeah, Haman, you're awesome. You're so powerful, Haman. You're so influential. No one can stop you. Who is this puny Mordecai guy? You know, just get rid of him. And now they're like, well, yeah, yeah you can't stop Mordecai. I mean, he's Jewish. I mean, he's got God on his side. Yeah, you're going to die. You know, uh, it, you know, it would have been nice if they would have told him that yesterday before he erected that 75-foot pole and went and embarrassed himself before the king. Well, verse 14, it says, While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. And now it's Haman's turn to feel out of control. I think maybe for the first time in his adult life, he feels like, um, he can't control what's going to happen. Something's happening behind the scenes that he can't get his finger on. So, all right, let's go on and look at chapter 7, and then we'll stop. And I think this has got to be one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible. It makes me kind of pump my fist and say, yeah, God, you're awesome. So let's look at it. Verse 1, it says, So the king and Haman went to the Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. All right, so they've eaten, the king and Haman, they're drinking and they're in high spirits. The king's heart is still open to Esther and it's the right place. And finally, Esther feels like it's the right time. And in verses three and four, she says, Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, Grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, but because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. I mean, so there it is. She's out with it. I mean, from her perspective, she's revealing that she's Jewish. And so the king would know that the plan to kill the Jews would include her, include her as well. But the king um, still doesn't even seem to know it. I mean, look at his response in verse 5. He says, who is he? Where is he? The man who dared to do such a thing. It's like he still hasn't connected the dots. I mean, how does he not know at this point? I mean, If you remember, when Haman made the request, the king didn't even bother to ask who the people were who he wanted to annihilate. He said, yeah, just annihilate the people that you want to annihilate. That's fine. And so um, here, uh, he he still doesn't seem to know who the people are. It was so insignificant to him at the time. He can't connect the dots, but he knows he's mad at anyone who is threatening his queen. Uh, Who would dare to do such a thing, he asked. And... um, Esther answers in verse 6. This is such a great verse. An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. I love that. I mean, she doesn't cower before him. 
She doesn't say, well, you know, the plan was Haman's, but maybe, you know, there was a mistake. You know, maybe Haman was just being rash and he wasn't certain what he was doing. You know, Haman, um, is that right? Is that what happened, Haman? Maybe you can kind of help us here and, and, and fix this. You know, there's a time, you know, um, for, 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 for being um, diplomatic, right? But there's a time for just being um, out with it and saying what the case is. And so here she just points right at Haman. She's fully vested in God saving her people and says, it's this vile Haman. Well, there's no coming back from crossing that bridge. It's out there now. So verse six, it says, then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. I mean, what a reversal this is. I mean, 24 hours before Haman was reveling in all of his authority and his great position, he was boasting about all his power and influence. Now he's on his knees begging a young Jewish woman for his life. Verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace uh, to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Now, Haman, I mean, he's not really making a romantic overture towards Esther here at this point. I mean, the king had already decided what to do. And, you know, sometimes when people have already decided on a course of action, they look for ways to justify um, that action. So here, he, uh, the, the king, uh, strengthening his... Strengthening his resolve is interpreting Haman this way, like he's making a play for his wife. And at that point, I mean, Haman is just a bye-bye. Haman is a goner. Uh, and even the attendants know it because as soon as they heard this, it says, um, as soon as they heard the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And then I love this part, verse 9. Uh, this guy Harbona comes into the story, and, and boy, um, uh, he hasn't said anything up until now, but this is great. Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, You know, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Well, isn't Harbona just very helpful here, isn't he? I mean, talk about knowing the right time and the proper place for every matter. It looks like Harbona's been around the king for a while, and he knows when to shut up, and he knows when to speak up. He's held on to this little tidbit for the entire meal, and right at the perfect time, he just lets it out. And going on, it says, the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. I see all those loves going on. I guess you love that part, right? Now, my goodness, the very pole that Haman intended to use to execute Mordecai became the implement of his own demise. All right, Proverbs twenty six twenty seven is true about Haman. Whoever digs a pit, will fall into it. And if someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. Jesus said it this way, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And so the tragic tale of Haman comes to an end. Now, our story doesn't end there. There is more that we're going to get to next week. But as we get ready to conclude, I have one big takeaway for you. In the first chapter, we saw that God's in control. In the second chapter, we saw that God is way ahead of the game. Last week, we saw that God will be with you on the journey. He'll never leave you or forsake you. This week, what I want you to take away is this. God is going to work his plan. God is going to work his plan. 
It doesn't matter what evil people do. They can't thwart God's plan. God will have his way. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on my holy mountain. God is going to have his way. God is going to work his plan. And here's his plan for you. First, if you are not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you really don't have a relationship with him, here's what he says. Peter said, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And the Apostle John tells us that this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because you see, you can't save yourself. I can't save myself. I can never be good enough to earn God's favor or to earn God's forgiveness. Because of sin, the Bible says that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we can never reach to God's standard. And we must give an account to him one day. But Jesus died for our sins on the cross. That's why God sent him. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When Jesus died on the cross, he was dying to pay the penalty for our sins, to pay the price that, that we deserve to, to pay. And then he rose again from the dead. So you must come to him in repentance. You must say, you know what, God? I can't save myself. I acknowledge I am a sinner. I can't save myself. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and paid the penalty for my sins. And I believe that he also rose again from the dead. And you see, instead of controlling your own life, now you give control of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And so what I'd like to do right now is pray a short prayer um, and lead you in that. And you can say this prayer right in your home, uh, right where you are, to receive Christ as Savior. So would you all just take a moment and pray with me uh, this short prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you. I confess that I can't save myself that I don't match up to your standard. I've done things, I've sinned, and, uh, and I'm a sinner by nature. I've done things that are displeasing to you. And God, I confess, I can't save myself. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, that he paid the penalty for my sin, and that he rose again from the dead. And so, Jesus, I surrender my heart to you and surrender my life to you in faith. Be my Savior, be my Lord, transform my heart and make me new in Christ, God. For it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And if you've done that for the first time, um, I am so happy and pleased for you. And I'd love a chance to help you grow in your faith journey. Be in the Word of God. Uh, start in the Gospel of Mark or 
uh, Gospel of Matthew and begin reading. And um, God's going to speak to you in ways you've never known before. And begin to pray, even if it's for five minutes a day. Send me an email. Uh, you can go to our website, LancasterFirst.com, and uh, just send me an email. I'll do whatever I can to help you grow. And then to those of you who either just became a follower of Jesus or maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, um, this is God's plan for you. He says in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. God is working his plan in the world and he's working his plan in you. Let me just uh, pray for you. What we're going to do here as we wrap this up, uh, I'm going to ask Jill uh, to come around here and join me. And I believe she's been monitoring uh, some of the prayer requests during the chat at this time. And uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray kind of a, um, uh, a general closing prayer. And then um, hopefully we're going to pray for some of these uh, needs um, as well. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your love uh, for Jesus, and uh, thank you for all those likes and loves that went up during the live stream. Uh, I love you, and we love you, and um, and I'm praying that uh, God will just be with you, and uh, that the um, uh, that we're going to come out on the other side of this with greater love for Jesus and greater love for one another. So um, let me uh, just close in prayer here, and then Jill and I will stay, and we're going to pray for some of these uh, requests as well. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being with us uh, during this time and during this service. Uh, it's been something different, but uh, I know your presence has been here with us. I felt it, and your presence has been um, with your people. And uh, so bless each one um, in the name of Jesus, and uh, bless their families, and fill us with faith and with trust in you, for it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.